Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, as usual. And uh, But that's a wide topic. We could be talking about all kinds of things. We, we do a study every Tuesday where people can call in and ask questions. At, and uh, we're going through the Free Church Report, which is a book I wrote a number of years ago, that correlates... What the church was doing in the early days of the church, uh, when it was being uh, ministered to by the actual trained apostles and other ministers, there was at least 120 names in the upper room, so it wasn't just 12 apostles, and I always thought that number was kind of unique because there were 12 apostles and 120 people all together, that's like 10 people for every apostle. And of course, these were actually congregations of ministers. The Essenes at that time, as well as a lot of other groups, organized themselves into small congregations of 10 or 12 people. And they usually had like uh, three principals who were kind of the key group of keeping that small congregation organized. And then they connected by choosing a minister with all sorts of other groups, much like themselves. And they provided all the social welfare for the Essenes through a system of faith, hope, and charity. This was one of the unique things about the Essenes is that they were taking care of one another through... They were considered one of the most philanthropic organizations, religious organizations of its time. Even the Romans thought highly of the Essenes, more highly of the Essenes. You know, they would take the word of an Essene without an oath, because Essenes often would not take oaths, and uh, over that of a Pharisee who did take an oath, (laughs) because the Essenes were very... Highly thought of by lots of different people. They had been around for almost 300 years. Uh, there were Greeks and everybody who knew about these guys. And they were a variety of them. So they weren't all exactly the same. Some of them referred to some of the Essene groups as lovers of soft things because they actually ended up working for government. And uh, they they kind of prided themselves on their... Uh, Spartan lifestyle. They would often travel roads that uh, were a little bit more ancient or remote and uh, not as well paved, so to speak, uh, because uh, they want to avoid uh, paying into the Roman taxes, which are often uh, imposed upon you when you passed. You know, they had toll roads, so you pass certain areas and you would have to pay. A tax. If you were on foot, it was a small amount, but if you had a cart or beasts of burden, you would have to pay more, and uh, Romans collected money that way so that they could build more roads. Well, the Essenes were known for actually not following those roads, but going the ancient roads, which were often more difficult, 
but uh, they help maintain those roads themselves with their own uh, ingenuity and effort. But anyway, the uh, the early church, this free church report is telling us about the early church, how they operated, what they considered liturgy at that time. Because this whole idea of liturgy has changed drastically over the years. There was a church, it was instituted by Constantine, that uh, was full of a lot of rituals and ceremonies. It did operate to some degree by charity. That was one of the big things. The temples were almost entirely under Augustus Caesar. The, some of the temples that provided social welfare were supported by huge gifts from the emperors. And uh, those gifts from the emperors were usually the result of conquest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and huge amounts of property that the emperors owned, and uh, they were able to take this millions and millions of dollars of funds and support the temples. And then, of course, the priests of the temples supported the emperor. And they actually became the Pontifex Maximus of the temples, in other words, uh, kind of the high priests of the temples. And uh, because they were such big donors, but they were only big donors because they were taking away from other people. And of course, some of that taking away ended up in tribute. So tribute is just a form of taxes. You tax upon what this country produces and that would go to the emperor and the emperor could take those huge amounts of funds and put them into the temples and the temple would have funds for taking care of the needy of society. Uh, the temples also coined money and they did all the business of government because they were government temples. In the Republic, the, the temples were supported either by investment or free will offerings. They weren't supported by taxation because it was a Republic. People were free from things public. The government did not force a collection. They couldn't even force a draft in the early days of Rome. If there was going to be a war, people had to volunteer for the war because they were free people. But all that changed over a period of time because the people, you know, developed this appetite for benefits at the expense of their neighbors. First foreigners and then their own neighbors themselves. And this, of course, divided society and weakened society, just like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then you saw all kinds of lasciviousness cropping up in the once very moral Roman culture. They didn't have a lot of slaves at first. Uh, they did everything themselves. They had the work ethic of the Teutons. But as wealth came in, apathy and, and indulgence and corruption became more commonplace. And all slavery wasn't necessarily bad. It was simply, you were a servant in this household. You might be you know, the Romans always had the custom because of Saturnalia of there would be a, a feast every year where the slave owners served the slaves. They actually, you know, waited upon the slaves and were supposed to show their appreciation of the slaves who worked for them, which were just servants who worked in their household. And uh, they they cultivated a good relationship in some cases with those servants who chose to be slaves in their household because, you know, it was a wealthy household and life was good and there were laws that you couldn't mistreat slaves and 
stuff like that. But I mean, we just use the word slave rather than domestic servant. And we think, oh, somebody's getting beaten, abused, and all that. And of course, that can, slavery or, or servitude can lead to that. And, you know, I've read stories where some of the first emperors of Rome actually punished people who were abusive to their slaves. That that was not a Roman trait. That you were not to be abusive. You were not to lord power over these individuals who worked for you. You were to take care of them. Now, today we have lots of slaves in America, but they're not involuntary slaves. They're voluntary slaves. And because involuntary servitude is illegal, but voluntary servitude is legal. And so we don't call them slaves, we call them employees. <laughs> so, and uh, you end up working a portion of every day, and you don't get paid for the work you do. That's, that's slavery. That's, you have to take a portion of your labor and you send it away to the government. And that's tribute. That's that's servitude. That's a core V system of servitude. And so that's where most people are in most countries in the world. France, the same way, um, you know, other other countries, much the same way as you see with uh, uh, the United States. Although some countries, the, the taxes can be 75% or more of what you produce. And the problem with that is it centralizes power and you get that corruption. Just as we saw in Rome when they started to have more and more domestic servants, more and more what we would call slaves, the, this often tempted the owners to be abusive because it was power, a centralization of power. They had power over the lives of these people. Of course, I see this in major corporations today where the, uh, I, I, I'm thinking of one particular big corporation has you know, 100 employees. And uh, the supervisors, you know, they don't own, own the company, but they're the guys who've been, you know, taskmasters who've been put in charge. You know, they they make so many decisions that benefit them, but don't really benefit their men who work there, the people who work there. They They make a lot of decisions that really actually puts a burden on the employee but allows them to have more free time or a better situation. And they just don't seem to be considerate of their employees. And then this this fluctuates to some degree, but the tendency constantly grows as the power in the supervisors grows. They're not a cooperative. They're not they don't have as much teamwork in the corporation. It's all about what I can get. And, of course, they dangle that carrot of you do really good and, you know, kiss up to the uh, supervisors. Then you get promotions, you get, you know, bonuses and all this stuff. So they actually are turning employees against their fellow employees so that they focus on the supervisors and rulers of the corporation. And that's so what I'm trying to show here is that you have you have this same principle of not loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself manifested in countries manifested in corporations or companies 
and it can, you know, down to even a mom pog business where there's only, you know, maybe an owner and a couple employees. The owner has power over that individual. If he has the spirit of Christ in him, he will constantly be caring about that individual and blessing that individual and trying, you know, thinking of what can he do for that individual. If he doesn't have the spirit of God in him, he will be thinking, what can I get out of that individual? What can I, you know, how can I milk the the uh, beneficial interest of his labor for my benefit? You know, how much can I get out of him? You know, can, and I've seen employers do this where they, you know, they'll actually, uh, they'll want to, you know, the guys who are working for them start making more and more money because they're, you know, like carpenters and they, they go up from journeymen to uh, the next level and they get regular wages increasing. Well, they get to a certain point where they want an individual to quit they don't want to fire them because that will cost them money. They want them to quit. So they kind of do little things to get them upset so they would quit. As soon as they quit, then they move everybody up in the, the company. They're always grooming the next guy because he's making a lower wage. But they're grooming him to take the place of the guy who's making the higher wage. And he's always figuring, you know, if I can get all the same amount of work done for paying lower wages... Then I make more money, and you know he doesn't—he does, he doesn't look like an ogre or anything, but that spirit is showing up in his choices, and that's just on a little company basis. Now you get a big corporation, and it's more, and then you—you you see it in a whole nation, and then it's—it's it's devastating to that nation because. That the trauma of that abuse passes down from generation to generation. It's the kingdom of hell on earth. See, the kingdom of hell is here. And the kingdom of heaven is here. They're both here right now. This is which one are you seeking? If you're seeking success at the expense of your neighbor, benefits at the expense of your neighbor... You're seeking the kingdom of hell because you don't love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Your lascivious, your wantonness is beginning to dictate how you do things and what you do. So you constantly have to be on guard. Am I making this decision based on the spirit of Christ? Or am I making this decision based on the spirit of Satan? Because, you know, what would Jesus do a lot of the people who say that or have that on their t-shirt, they don't actually know what Jesus would do because they're not doing it. They're actually doing contrary to what Jesus would do. And so you have this this serious problem constantly being a, a reality within the daily ministration of your life. Of what you do and how you do it. You are constantly making choices that are taking you away from the kingdom of God. And away from the righteousness of God. 
And you need to turn around and make those choices so that it draws you near the kingdom of God. And those choices will be that you care about others. The whole reason people gathered together was to serve. The early church was to serve others. Not to go to a church service that would make you feel good, but to go to a church service that would serve others. Those 120 in the upper room were seeking to be servants of the people. Today, the most successful ministers are the ministers who make people feel good. They get the most money, the nicest houses, and the most reward. Why? Because the spirit of wanting to feel good and be rich and be well off is in you. You don't love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So you will be drawn towards ministers who don't love you as much as they love themselves. How can a minister live in a million dollar mansion and go preach to people that are struggling to get by? I mean, why would you need to live in a million dollar mansion? Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's insane. You know, like one of the things that I talked about years ago is that every member of every congregation should be trying to figure out ways of adding guest quarters to their house. Even if it's just to have a tent that they could set up in the garage or in the backyard to house extra people, uh, guests who are coming through or passing through or maybe fleeing some other part and you would constantly be trying to have that extra rollout beds or beds or mattresses and and extra sleeping bags and extra food that you could feed people and share with people you know we got the survivalist who's thinking about extra foods for himself but if you really want to be a survivalist you have to think about extra food for others now, you get to choose who you're going to share those food with or the, that extra bed or whatever it is. That's your responsibility. And unless you have the Holy Spirit, you may uh, share it with the wrong person. I was talking to a fellow the other day who, whose father had, you know, left home when he was a young man. I mean, like a teenager, 15, 14 years old. And uh, he himself had a problem with alcohol. And uh, constantly, would, he worked hard, but then he would end up drinking up the money. And uh, neglected his family, had a bad temper, blow his top and run off on a drunken binge. And come back, and you know, and and he just was wrecking his life. And not making his children very happy with him. But yet, when he needed help... At least some of the children reached out and said, well, he's our father, we need to help him. And they helped him. And it wasn't always easy because he was still had a lot of bad habits. But he was old and he was. they thought he was only had a year to live. Well, because they helped him, he probably uh, was the reason why he lived another 15, 16 years. And uh, did he deserve it? Did he deserve that help? It doesn't really matter. It's they needed to help him to free themselves of the resentment they had for the abuses that he suffered upon them uh, when they were growing up. This is how they are set free 
so that they don't become like him. If they resent him, they will become like him. And we explain all this in our series on traumas that if you don't forgive, it will draw you into the characteristics of those who you refuse to forgive. Now, forgiveness is not absolution. Forgiveness is you forgive. You're not going to judge. You're not going to hold it against them. You leave God to judge. You leave the karma of God in heaven to take care of the, what they've done wrong. And you forgive them. And this frees you from that cycle where it says the sins of the father visited upon the sons for seven generations. If you forgive your fathers or your abusers, that sets you free. It breaks that connection, that cycle, so that you don't return to the ways of your father. Or at least the bad ways of your father. And then you, you actually seek the good ways the good things about your father, the hard-working ethics, uh, etc., that uh, he may have had without the drunken binges that he also had. Because you forgive that. And this is part of the process. Well, now, put this in on a national basis. Your whole nation has been coveting one another, forcing one another. And this is what you see with the people who see the corruption in corporations and uh, in government. And they say, oh, we have to overthrow this and set up a socialist system where the rich can't take advantage of us. We'll take advantage of us. <laughs> That's what, what I said, that uh, in capitalism, the uh, man exploits man. In socialism, the process is reversed, which would be man exploits man. <laughs> it's like... You know, throwing the Shah out of Iran or, yeah, it was out of Iran or was it out of Iraq? I forgot now. Iran. Um, he threw, they threw the Shah out because his police tortured people. And, of course, the new Khomeini regime that came into power, their, their police tortured people. <laughs> they just... They just switched hands with a stick. And actually, in some cases, it was the same police. You know, because as soon as the uh, Khomeini people were taking over, they said, uh, oh, we're with you. <laughs> and they said, well, they said, what can you do? Well, I can torture. Okay, you, you'll be in charge of the new secret police. So, because they didn't change. They, they hated one group and became like that which they hated. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Um, so, our last show on, or I should say, course program was on the liturgy of uh, the church and what that early church was doing as far as a liturgical presence in the congregation of the people. And, of course, one of the things they did was set up... Um, Literally what you would call today a credit union, which is what these seven men that are chosen by the people and appointed by apostles like Peter were doing. They were in charge of waiting on tables. Well, the word there for tables is the word for bank. It's even translated bank in the Bible. And why were the, was that important is because they needed to move funds from one end of the nation to the other to provide for the social welfare of the needs of the people. Like in Greece, there were Greeks that were having a lot of trouble and they needed assistance and they were being neglected. Well, everybody could, you know, um, send in a couple of loaves of bread in in, uh, Jerusalem and and then they could pack it up on an ox cart and haul it all the way to Greece. <laughs> which is not really very practical. Uh, or they could have funds that were going into the temple where the apostles were working daily. And those funds would be uh, taken over by these seven men who were, which they chose. We have found seven men chosen in places like Ephesus. And Christians, seven men, who were actually of wealthy families, but chose to give up their wealth to become these seven men in charge of the funds of the church so that they could move funds around and where it was needed. And I, I explained that there was in Athens, usually a rich man got a voluntary position that was the liturgical position within this state of Athens, the city-state of Athens. What was he doing? What was the the liturgy of hours and and dedication and uh, attending to public prayer that is done in the liturgy? Now, we think liturgical rites of the Catholic Church uh, has to do with a bunch of monks sitting in a chapel somewhere, praying in the Liturgia Hororum, or Divine Office, they call it. The the work of God. Um, Opus Dei. And they have these uh, canonical hours where they say certain prayers every hour. And that's not, that's not what the liturgy was. It was about the prayers of the people. And here we see in Acts where the Greeks are saying a prayer. Our daily administration is being neglected. We need help over here in Greece. How do you get help to Greece? You know, do you, you have to have food and funds and supplies. Travel to Greece. Well, where's the best place to get those food and funds? You know, well, maybe in Jerusalem, but maybe there's extra food in Rome. Uh, and you could just 
sail across to Greece. And maybe there's extra food in Egypt. You could buy a shipload of grain in Egypt and move it to Greece where it will supply the people who are having the shortage of food. Maybe it isn't food that they need. Maybe it was an earthquake and they need more building supplies. Maybe they need tents. And uh, they need to move that. Well, where's the best place to find those tents to move there for relief supplies? Because their daily ministration is being neglected for one reason or another. A dearth, an earthquake, a volcano in Pompeii, whatever it is. They need to get aid there. Well, this is why they picked the seven men. So they can move those funds around. Because they would have access to banking. They weren't a bank. As we think of a bank today. Because they weren't for profit. They were, uh, you know, a financial institution. That could receive money and direct money to go to here and there. And were recognized. And this, of course, is why... Because they set up things like this, this is why the Christians were accused of robbing the temple, which was a bank, at Ephesus. Is because people were now investing in the Christian system of social welfare rather than the pagan system of social welfare. Today, most Christians apply to a pagan system of social welfare. How do you distinguish between a pagan system of social welfare and a Christian? The Christian does it through charity. The pagan does it through force. Now, I'm using that pagan as it was used by Christians. Because, actually, I find some people today that call themselves pagan because they're reacting against this false church that is not really doing what Jesus said. And so they're saying, well, we believe in paganism. But there's sometimes, rarely, but it happens, where you'll find more charity amongst pagans (laughs) than you find amongst Christians who only have kind of a token charity. You know, they'll send a hundred bucks to Africa because those people are really, really poor. Meanwhile, in their church, you know, they collect $8,000 or or maybe twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars to send to the missions to the poor people in South America or Africa or wherever. But ninety percent of the needs of their elderly is taken care of by men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. The fathers of the earth, who they are actually praying to for their benefits. Christianity was this other thing. And their liturgy involved prayer and charity, forgiveness and assurance rather than surety. So most Christians today have more in common with the pagans and the Pharisees at the time of Jesus Christ than they have in common with the early church. And that's just the way it is. They they don't take care of one another. You know, like Polybius, they they apply to men who exercise authority and say, Please, please, oh government of choice, take from my neighbors so that I may have more benefits. 
you force my neighbor to contribute to my welfare. Now, such welfare systems are a snare. Paul tells us that. Peter tells us that. Uh, King David told us that. It says it in the Bible over and over again. Not to eat at such tables. Certainly not with any appetite. But here we are. We're doing it. And people think they're Christians. And they think they're Christians because they have ministers paid big money to tell them that they're saved because they thought a thought about Jesus. They don't have to be doers of the word. They just have to think this thought and say these words. They don't have to be true. They just have to say them. You know, we trust in Jesus and the Federal Reserve and Social Security system and welfare and food stamps and yeah, right. You don't trust in Jesus. You're lying to yourself. You're delusional. And now I come along and say, you're deluded. You're not a Christian. And so, anyway, in the in the show we did, and I put the audios up this last week, so you can go, if you're in the network, you got a notice yesterday, before I took off, I was gone like 12 hours yesterday, <laughs> came back just totally exhausted, but uh, before I left, I sent out, I got up early, around 4 or something, and I went through the audio, and I edited it, and I, I put it up, put the link up on the page, that is concerned with the liturgy, liturgy of the church and uh, made it available, you know. And about 20 people listened to it. I don't know how many people listen to it now. I could check. Sometimes weekends, things get kind of slow. Oh, about 24 people have listened to it since I posted it, which is not very many. But there'll be more coming, you know, but we could get a lot of people listening to it and finding out what the liturgy of the church is. See, most of you are following the liturgy of Nimrod and Cain. Most of you are biting one another through men who exercise authority in covetous practices which have made you merchandise. And the only way to set free is to stop doing that and turn around and start caring for one another in faith, hope, and charity. Not just those you know in your little local congregation, but nationwide. And that's what we see right out of the box with the first century church and the ministers who were trained by Christ. Right away, they're moving funds from Jerusalem to Syria and and Galatia to Corinth and, and to the Greeks and to wherever they're needed. Food and supplies to help balance out this whole kingdom. But now here today we have people say, oh, well, we don't want to be a part of any kind of network. We just want to have our little home church. We'll, we'll join your little email groups and maybe we'll get more people to join our, our little local congregation and maybe come to our feasts where we do primitive camping. And, uh, you know, and we, we read the Torah and the Tanakh. We don't have an international system that can actually move funds all across the world. Because we're not really interested in the kingdom. We're interested in self-righteousness, thinking that we're saved because we got our little local congregation. 
And maybe you go so far and you're wearing prayer shawls with a little fringe on it and all that kind of stuff. And you think, oh, well, I'm doing what God said in the Tanakh and the Torah. Because I wear a prayer shawl and a beanie. No. No, that's not it. Not at all. Not even close. Not even slightly. Where's your living stones that take care of the daily ministration? You don't have that? Oh, you don't need that, you think. Okay, who took care of your parents? You're, you're hypocrites. You're lost in rituals and, and phony liturgy. And you're not actually taking care of anybody but a handful of people. And then you only take care of them partly. I mean, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, your grandfather, who's taking care of them? Are you taking care of them or are you living at their house and somebody else is actually providing the food on the table and paying the rent? No, seeking the kingdom of God is stripping down to the essentials of community and a nation. It's it's stripping you down to the point where you have to care about others. You have to actually sacrifice. That's the daily sacrifice. I was just reading and uh, actually created some pages. I should look up and see what the, that looks like. I, I forgot how many pages I was working on, but the, this whole idea of the red heifer and building the temple in Jerusalem, so many evangelical Christians, fundamentalist evangelical Christians, they're not Christians. They're not evangelical for Christ. They're not preaching what Christ said to preach. No, they're they're playing church. They're imagining that they... I mean, where's their daily ministration? Are they taking care of all the widows and orphans and needy of their society without praying to men who exercise authority? No, they're not. Well, then they're not the church. Are they striving to do that? No, well, then not the church. That's just all there is to it. They're not the church. They're not the church established by Jesus Christ. They're not doing what Jesus Christ said to do. Yeah, abomination of desolations. That's, that's something I was, I was working on. This abomination of desolation. The daily sacrifice and abomination of desolation are connected in precept and in prophecy. In Daniel 8, 11, 13, you say, Yay! He magnified himself even to the prince of hosts. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the uh, place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground. And uh, it practiced and prospered. What's the truth? The truth is you're supposed to be living by charity. You're supposed to be setting your neighbor free. And not forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. 
You're supposed to be daily sacrificing for the needy of your society in a way that strengthens them. That's the truth. But you put that daily sacrifice out of the way and you want to go out and find some red cow and kill it to think that the ashes will purify your sacrifice. You're delusional. You're insane. You're crazy. You're not, you're not following what the Bible says. You're following the Pharisees. You don't even know what Jesus was talking about. Said thou shalt not covet your neighbor's goods. Especially to the agency of men who exercise authority. You're praying to the fathers of the earth to take care of your family, your parents, yourself. That is a total abomination. It turns you into savages and makes you fit for tyrants and despots. You deserve them and you elect them on a regular basis. He goes on, and a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression and it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. It was a covetous practice. Then he says, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? The sanctuary of Christ, the sanctuary of God, is to be built by living stones. Not by dead stones. By men who actually come in the name of Christ to serve. Not be served. Not to be put into a million dollar mansion. Or comfortable house. By the sacrifices of the people. In Daniel 11.31 it says, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolation. What is the abomination that maketh death, desolation? Greed. Covetous. What? What brings you into condemnation? What brings you, makes you merchandise? What turns you into a human resource? Collateral for debt. What practice does that? The covetous practice that does away with the daily choice to sacrifice for God. To give. Not just token giving, but real giving. Regular giving. Your heart doesn't beat once a week. Your heart beats every moment of every day. How many of those beats are for Christ? For the way of Christ. In Daniel twelve eleven it says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand and two hundred and ninety days. 
and everybody counts the days, but they don't understand what the abomination and the end of the daily sacrifice is. The daily sacrifice is not killing sheep or red heifers. It's you giving up part of your sweat, toil, and blood for the welfare of somebody else as if you cared about your neighbor as much as you cared about yourself. You don't do that, though. Which is why in Matthew 24, we, uh, verse 15, we read, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. That was way in Matthew 24, 15. But the reality is, they were doing that at that time. And you're doing that at this time. You don't have a daily sacrifice that takes care of the needy of your society. You have a daily sacrifice. Well, you do sacrifice, but you sacrifice by covetous practices that bring you into bondage and therefore you have to pay in. You don't get to make the daily choice. You know, that daily choice of sacrifice. What what are they talking about? This daily sacrifice and choice. You know, if, if we look up those words, in the Hebrew anyway, of daily sacrifice, uh, and, and and try to find out, we see the word that... Uh, they translate daily. Normally, that word is translated continually. I mean, 53 times continually, 26 times uh, continual, 7 times daily. Uh, but it's also translated always. And it has to do with, uh, you know... Doing this on a regular basis. Not, you know, once a week or once a year or once every six months where you say, well, I'll give a few bucks to the daily administration. You have to give regularly. You have to give daily, just like your heart beating. If you don't do it like your heart beats, then you're part of the trans, you're slothful and you should be under tribute. That's what this daily sacrifice is really all about. is not being slothful in the ways of God. So, in Mark thirteen fourteen, we also see, but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation. This abomination of desolation. What the heck is that? What, where do we, how do we understand what the abomination of desolation really means? And where is it really found? Well, you only find that phrase, abomination of desolation, in the New Testament, in that Mark thirteen fourteen and Matthew twenty four fifteen. And and the word abomination actually shows up about six times in the Bible. And it means a foul thing of idols, things pertaining to idolatry. 
setting up a system to substitute for the system of the kingdom of God is idolatry. And what is the system of the kingdom of God? Those that have share with those that don't have enough because you love your neighbor as yourself. The word desolation only shows up about three times in the Bible. And it actually means to make desolate. You know, like turn you into merchandise. You know, uh, to bring, that brings you desolation, brings you into bondage. That's already a done deal. Well, we'll be back more and see how much of an abomination the world has become. We'll be right back. The keys of the kingdom. When we uh, look at this word abomination, we also find it in Luke, where the, we see the word uh, in uh, 1615, where it says, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination. In the sight of God. And this goes for many of these million dollar ministers. They, they esteem themselves. They, they, they're full of self-righteousness. Oh, we're saved because we love Jesus. But you don't love Jesus because you aren't doing what Jesus said. In Revelation 17.4 we see, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having gold cups in her hand, full of abomination and filthiness of her fornication. Fornication with what? With the gods of the earth, with the rulers of the earth, with the fathers of the earth. And upon her forehead was the name of Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots. Not just a harlot by herself, but the mother of harlots. Who are they? The daughters of the harlot are the churches of today. And the abomination of the earth. Mystery Babylon. A whole world feeds its widows and orphans in need of society through forced offerings. The richer the country, the more they will do this through force Rather than charity. And without charity, you have nothing. You aren't Christian. You aren't taking care of one another. And there shall no wise enter into anything that, that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination 
or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that's uh, that was in Revelation twenty one twenty seven, and the context of that that's the last verse in um, in that chapter twenty one. And people love Revelations. People, if I told everybody I was going to talk about Revelation, we'd probably get way more listeners because they, you know, they all want to know what's coming. Well, the lake of fire for some of you, <laughs> the second death for some of you, because you aren't really seeking the kingdom of God. You're look, you're you're seeking the self righteousness of your own little goopy group. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth was passed away. Are we actually going to lose the planet? Or are they talking about something else? It was a new earth after the flood. And there was no more the sea, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, our heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The seas, that's people. That's always been people in prophecy. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Is with men? What what are they talking about there? Why do they say the tabernacle of God is with men? The word with there is translated with, after, among, also. It's the word meta. Among men. The tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them. You know, the same word, amongst them, and be their God. Well, if you can apply to benefits from the gods of the earth, then the God of heaven is not your God. And it says, And the God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more Death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. No more pain. Ponos is the word pain there. And that actually just means great trouble. Or intense desire. Desire for what? Desire to live at the expense of your neighbor. God will not dwell in you as long as you want to live at the expense of your neighbor. You said, well, I paid in. I did blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so what? You were a fool. You're coveting your neighbor's goods. You're not forgiving. You have to forgive that. Forgive yourself for being so foolish. Now, start seek, turn around, start seeking the kingdom of God. It doesn't operate by force. It operates by charity. And he sat upon the throne. And behold, 
I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Do you want the water of life? Or do you want the benefits of the fathers of the earth? Wow, what a choice. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. And the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable. And the murderers and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters. Yeah, go read our deal on idolaters. Idolatry. Worship false gods. Serve false gods. Serve the gods of the earth, the gods of the world, the apotheos, who decide good and evil for you. That's you guys out there in the world. Taking your benefits at the hands of these ruling judges. You're a whoremonger. You say you believe, but you don't live by faith, hope, and charity. You didn't elect seven men to take care of the needy of people in other nations and other cities. You just got your little home church. Oh, you love your family and your friends. But do you love those people in Galatia, in Corinth, in Sydney, and in Toronto? If you do, then where's your network? Your international network of charity. These, the idolaters and all the liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. That's the church. Now, I've, I've talked about this before. And uh, actually, if you go back in the guidelines and and some of the early uh, audios, there's a merger it talks about in a trust where the beneficiary becomes one with the... Uh, the uh, the corpus of the trust. And how is that possible? And I put it to all these legal beagles in the original agreement conference that we had in Colorado. And they couldn't get it. But when we didn't have the entire crowd there, I went up and I showed them on the chalkboard how the this actually comes about. This merger. And I still have... It's still hidden 
in the book where you can find it, where it talks about it. And But you you have to see with spiritual eyes to see where that connection, where they could become one. And that's why they talk about this bride of Christ. Having the glory of God and her light was like one, uh, like unto a stone most precious and even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. How did they merge? Well, it's the Lamb's wife. There's the key. <laughs> That's a key. A little hint there. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed the great city, the holy Jerusalem mountain. That's a pile of people descending out of the heavens from God. This holy Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Salam. Peace. Jeru. Double. Double peace. It's the, uh, it's actually a couple different forms. You know, you have uh, Yad Resh with a Vav, Shem, Lamad, Mem. Mem has to do with flow. Lamad has to do with hand. hand. Resh has to do with rulership, dominion. Yad has to do with the connection between God and man, along with an elif, which does not appear here in this particular word. Although you will find Jerusalem written with a Yad, Resh, Vav, Shem, Lamad, Yad again in a Mem. doesn't always have that second Yad. Sometimes it does. But this Jerusalem is a dual thing. It's a double thing. The peace of God. The Salem, Shalem of God is both in body and soul. In order to get to the point where it's in body and soul, you have to get down to the bottom of the soul. You have to look at yourself. How selfish you are. Any church is going around pointing about those people over there don't do it right and those people over there don't do it right and those people over there don't do it right which sometimes seems like I'm saying. (laughs) That's not it. They need to be showing you what is right. And what is right is to love one another. Yes, I say they're not loving one another. Sitting in the pew having, pew having good feelings about other people while you're praying to men who exercise authority to take away from your neighbor. That's not love. That's just not love. If that's what you're doing, that's not love. That's not charity. That's not living by charity. That's living by the sword. If you choose to take away from your neighbor, you shall be taken away from If you choose to put your neighbor under tribute so that you can have benefits, you shall be under tribute. And that's exactly where you're at. You're not building the roads. You're not taking care of the orphans and the widows and the needy of your society. Not through charity. You could be doing this 
But you have to give regularly, like your heart gives you blood regularly. Every moment. Beat, 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 beat. You have to be giving with a heart full of love for others. You get to choose who's to give to. I don't care who you give to. God cares. Ask Him. But this is why you gather. So that you will know who to wisely give to. Who is strengthening the poor? I saw a video uh, the other day of a woman who's going around collecting change. Street person, you know. Makes it like she's homeless. She's got this big can. She shakes the change at cars and tries to get people to give her something. Puts the pressure on them. Somebody followed her. Saw her out there every day and then followed her to her car. She got like a 2014 really nice car. Nicer than anything that I got. (laughs) And I work every day. (laughs) But I give almost half of everything I have away or more, baby. I don't know. I can't even keep track. If you count hours of the day and beats of the heart, I give away a lot. (laughs) We actually go into homes and take care of people, help people. Spend hours counseling people daily. Trying to help them see. And, and many of them do. I, you know, it's, it's not very hard to help people who I see doing things. Like I, I mentioned the fellow who took care of his father. His father never took care of him. But, you know, I shouldn't say never. But there was an awful lot of neglect and abuse. But when the chips were down, he took care of his father. Didn't always do it cheerfully. <laughs> you know, he had a lot to get over. And, and he saw that some of his siblings were not as forgiving or as giving. And uh, he thinks that was a mistake. And he thinks that, no, no, we have to take care of him. And it's not excusing what he did wrong. But it's releasing you. From becoming like that which you hate. Because forgiveness is the end of conflict. Can you do that? Can you give up and forgive? And give. Oh, I forgive them, but I don't want to have anything to ever do with them. I don't want to help them. I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to take care of them. But that's what they did. They did take care of him. And the forgiving part was hard. It was a process. And you have to be a part of that process in your own life. With your own parents and teachers and policemen. And I don't know who you need to forgive. But you need to forgive. And you need to forgive yourself. You cannot do this with your own strength. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You have to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And, and you know, it goes on. I, I won't read all of, you know, this Revelations, you know, into 21 and 13. And, uh, and I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, 
to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So what are they talking about? They have the twelve gates where twelve pearls, every uh, several gate was one pearl and the streets of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. So how can you have pure gold as it were transparent glass? Hmm. All bizarre descriptions. So do you have any idea what that looks like? What what they're talking about? I mean, the word there that we see translated glass is any stone that is transparent like glass. But it only appears twice in the Bible. And it, it's from a, a word that actually means rain. <laughs> so... So what, what are they talking about there? This, this word that they say is glass, but actually means rain from, um, you know, this other word. You know, it, like I said, it shows up twice in the Bible. Well, where, where does it show up twice in the Bible? Both in Revelations. Both within a very short, you know, the building of the wall, uh, of it was of jasper and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And then it talks about the twelve gates. And so it's that word only shows up in Revelations in, in verses eighteen and twenty one of Revelations twenty one. You know, I mean Revelations it's it's a fascinating book. I don't believe it was written by one guy. I believe it was written by several different guys. Uh where it's attributed to John, but there were lots of Johns. And I think it was written at several different times. And and then it was you know, finished by another one. And there's no reason not to believe that, except for the fact you want to believe the ministers who you ha- has told you that you're saved because you think a thought. <laughs> you like to, you, you know, we're saved because we're a part of this church, or we're saved because we're a part of that church, or we said the magic words. But it doesn't work that way. You're not saved because you say the magic words. So, the, in my little article that it really isn't finished yet on abomination of desolation, you know, I talk about the evangelical modern fundamentalist Christian leaders imagine they need the third temple prophesied to play a key role in the end times. And they desire to actually construct this temple over there in Jerusalem. They have even enlisted experts in cattle ranching to use uh, modern science to breed an absolutely red heifer to meet the requirements uh, to purify their temple. Uh, Totally delusional. Fools. Idiots. Imbeciles. (laughs) But uh, clearly not operating by the Spirit of God. Now, now that I've said those bad things about them, I pray that they repent and realize what the red heifer really is. Uh, and, you know, I have an article, red heifer or red herring. Because <laughs> they're distracting you. Is the sacrifice of the red heifer an allegory? Uh, about securing allies through faith and charity? 
what were the altars of clay and stone? And it links to other articles so you can go and find out what the altars of clay and stone was. The Bible tells the people of Israel in Numbers 19.2 that this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. So, Clearly, they're talking about getting a red cow. You know, I mean, it's not a cow; it's a heifer. It hadn't had a calf yet, and to sacrifice it in some unique manner, being mentioned only once in the Old Testament, dispatched and consumed with flames outside the camp, and the ashes from this slaughtered animal are taken to a clean place and mixed with the water to be used. On uh, the third and seventh day of a seven-day purification process required whenever someone is considered unclean, having come in contact with the dead. All these descriptions in the Old Testament have been unmoored from their true meaning because the language is just full of metaphor and allegories. And you got these Pharisees out there killing red heifers, setting them on piles of wood, and setting them on fire, collecting the ashes, and going around with their stupid rituals, foolish rituals, uh, to purify things. Uh, you know, in case they were in contact with the dead, they touched somebody who was dead. But the dead were walking around all the time. According to Jesus, let the dead bury the dead. That's the dead. The people who are full of these rituals rather than righteousness. You cannot substitute rituals for righteousness. That's a metaphor. In in the article on Red Heifer, we explain what that metaphor is. You know, if we read this cold with our... We actually don't read it cold. We always have this preconceived notions because people have told us already. We are Because we think that, you know, the sacrifice was piling up stones and setting sheep on fire. We are to believe that somehow God wanted the people to kill a heifer and burn it up outside the camp. And that it was important that the heifer was completely red not a single white hair in, in there, which is almost impossible. They also had to gather up the ashes and sprinkle blood in a special way. And if they did all these bizarre rituals and ceremonies, their nation would be blessed by God and the ashes of the sacrifice would protect them from coming into contact with dead people. But they are the ones who are dead if they believe that that's actually what they're talking about. They're dead to the Spirit. People say, well, God wouldn't write all this stuff and make it so confusing. He didn't. It's only confusing because you're not walking in the Spirit. When I read that, I said, like, what? There's got to be something more here. And I took the time to find out. And now I put it down in an article and I give it to you for free.
And you sit there and say, oh no, God made this simple. We're just supposed to kill a red heifer and build a dead stone temple and and go there and say these magic words and then he will bless us because we did all these things in his name. But meanwhile, we're going to go to men who exercise authority and force our neighbor to contribute to our welfare. Right? Bunk. You idiots. You imbeciles. When I say idiots, I mean non-participators in the kingdom of God. Now, the people who want to just have their little home church and go off and just do their own little thing, maybe have a few people over for, uh, you know, a festival now and then, they're idiots. Idiotis. Non-participators in the kingdom. They're not thinking kingdom. They're, pre- pre- they're thinking their own private little self-righteous group. you got to think kingdom. That means you have to care about people you don't even know as much as you care about yourself. And you have to, as much, so you have to do it daily. We'll be back. Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, I'm Brother Gregory, and I was trying to tell you what the red heifer really was, so that you could actually turn around and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It isn't a cow. It isn't a bovine. And uh, and we go through and show you this pretty clear. At least clear enough for those who want to walk in the Holy Spirit and see you know, help you overcome your delusion. But this, uh, the red heifer, the, the truth is in the Hebrew word red found in this verse is the same word for Adam. And also the word we see as man. The word for heifer is the same Hebrew word um, for to bear fruit and increase. So, it's not a red heifer. It's the increase of man. It's your surplus. It's no different than what John the Baptist said. That if you have two coats, surplus, (laughs) more coats than you need, and your neighbor has none, share. This goes for your nation. The neighboring nation. Outside the camp. If you have extra... And the nation outside your camp doesn't have enough. They're not a part of your network. They're outside your camp. If you have extra fruit, share. It's foreign aid. The ashes or whatever comes back to you after you've burned it up entirely outside the camp. In other words, when they come, they want to help you back. You know, because they got back on their feet again. You help them 
in a way that strengthened them. You didn't just send them aid like we do in Africa where they just send them all kinds of food and it makes them all dependent and actually destroys their local economy because you know, anybody who was making clothes and selling clothes, they're, business, they're run out of business because your missionaries come in with bags and bags of clothes for free. So the people who are going to actually start a business and work up and become producers in society are run out of business by all the free giveaways. You know, the same thing happened in, in Rome. They used to grow all the wheat that they needed. But then the emperor started importing wheat, fiddling with the, the price of wheat. They actually did it before there was an, even an emperor. They, there were some generals who were doing this. And they controlled the price of wheat. And then they controlled the people. But anyway, back to this red heifer. The word red heifer is the same as saying the increase of man. You're supposed to take the increase of Adam, the men, who are the sons of Adam, and sacrifice it outside the camp. That means not giving it to people inside the camp that you've already taken care of through the daily ministration. Now you're going to take the surplus of that that you don't need and you'll take it outside the camp. Well, how does that translate into your local congregation? Your local congregation, every one of you meets, ten families meet. Every one of you give a tithe. Everything you produce the in, in the week, uh, you know, the fruit that you produce, you gave ten percent of that or tenth or some sort of share. You know, you can give more. And if you can't afford, you know, if you have a real, we don't want you to think you have to give 10% exactly. You have to give your share. What makes it the 10th is it's your share of 10 families. Each family gives it what it chooses to give, what is right in its eyes. Hopefully that God gives you your sight. You give. And give it into the congregation. And now the minister sees, does anybody in the congregation need help? Well, no. Everybody's doing fine. Okay, so then he gives a tenth to his congregation of ministers. And he says, okay, anybody here in this congregation need help? And they have to say they need help. They have to say their prayer. You know, we, we can't just say, well, I think he needs something. Let's just say, no, he's got to say, you know, I need some help here. It requires humility to say that for most people. And the minister needs to check, does, you know, how much help does he really need? And uh, can we afford to help him? Should we help him? Is this help going to strengthen him? Build his character. Has he been lazy? Is that why he needs the help? Has he been selfish? Is that why he needs the help? He can't hold a job because he's always being self-indulgent. So he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a good job. He could have had a good job, but he gave it up for what, you know, because he wanted to take time off or he wanted to have pleasure or he wanted whatever he wanted. So he doesn't have a good job anymore. And so now he needs help. How do we help him? Do we just give him or we help him get back and get a good job again so that he can take the gifts that God has given him and increase in the talents that God has given him and double them. 
Because if he's been given talent and he is wasting that talent, we should not reward him. That Christ is clear in the parables that we should not reward his sloth, his avarice, his self-indulgence. We should not reward that. Now, we're not going to pick on him or rebuke him in a way that we want to put him down, but we want to bring him up. We want to teach him how to fish, how to use his talent wisely. Okay, so now we share that. Now, everybody in the camp is taken care of. We still have a surplus. Red heifer. That's what the red heifer is. It's not a cow. (laughs) It's the extra fruit you have after you've taken care of the needy of your society, your camp. Now you take it and you sacrifice it outside the camp to the neighboring camps that are not a part of your camps. Abraham did this all the time. That's why when Abraham had to attack the guys who had taken Sodom and Gomorrah to get his nephew back, all kinds of other people said, let's go help Abraham. Because he'd been sacrificing the red heifer, his surplus, all the time with other people. He was not selfish with other people. Somebody somebody did did me a favor, saved me two days of work. Actually, saved me a day's work, maybe more. And uh, and uh, I asked him, I said, "So, what what do I owe you for you know helping me out and all this?" And he he said, two hundred fifty dollars. I says, "No, nah, he says two hundred fifty dollars sounds right." He says. I says, no, $300 sounds right. <laughs> and I gave him $300. And I know that it was it was worth $300. It was worth more than $300. It was probably worth $400. I would have paid him $400 if he said $400. I might have squeaked a little bit, but it was worth $400. Because it really saved us a lot. And it did a good job. And it was worth that. And I didn't want to take advantage of him. So I gave him more than what he asked for. I used to do this with my kids all the time. You know, I say, how much do you need? You know, need a hundred bucks. I give him more than a hundred bucks. Or I think one time he said 90 bucks. I gave him a hundred bucks. If, if he said I needed 20 bucks, I gave him 40 bucks. You know, it, it depended too. I, I'm not going to say, there's no set rule on it. But you, you, you give. Cause, but you require that they ask. The people that says, oh, I just need help. So well, how much help do you need? They got to tell you. It's important to them that they got to tell you. If you're going to work for somebody and you're going to work for free, then you're going to work for free. They owe you nothing. They can terminate anytime they want. But you say, well, what's this worth? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this for you. You know, sometimes I do it and don't say anything about it and it's done. It's just given away. I don't even remember. You know, I, I never come back and say, you know, I did this for you once and, you know, I don't do that. It's gone. I gave it up. And later on I may say, oh look, he gave me this. Well, I guess he kind of gave me that because I had given him this and maybe because I did this for him and, you know, but I only look at it retrospect. I don't, I, if I give it, 
it has to be freely given. And, you know, this is, this jealousy and envy, I mean, it cuts off the Holy Spirit. We had a question on the, uh, on the, uh, call on the Free Church Report where somebody was asking about the banking system, how these guys are all getting rich and they're draining us because of the banking system. And it was a sincere question, but you could tell that there was envy and jealousy, you know, and resentment towards these people who have abused society, selfishly abused society. They're going to lose everything. They're the traveling merchants of the earth. They're going to lose everything. I don't have to be angry with them. I have to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I don't need to be jealous and envious. And it's a struggle at times not to be that way. And I'm sure that individual struggles with it as well. But my answer had to do with we have to have the heart of the children of God. And if we have that, everything else will fall into place. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The righteous heart of the children of God. Who look at all things anew. And look at things with the eyes that God has given them. Then they will do what's right in their own eyes. But it's their own eyes given to them by God. But if you have the selfish, envious eyes. You're not going to get. You're not going to see things clearly. You're going to see, oh, we've got to get a red heifer and sacrifice it on a pile of stones outside the camp and set it on fire. And then we have to gather up the ashes and mix it with the blood. What is mixing it with the blood? The life of Christ. <laughs> the life of God is in the blood. We need to understand the metaphor, not unmoor the metaphor and go out and do these silly, ridiculous rituals. Propagated by Pharisees who couldn't even recognize Christ when he came. Are you crazy? (laughs) You need to turn around. These leaders are not what we need to change. We don't need new leaders. We don't need new presidents and senators. New fathers of the earth. To make things right. We have to repent. We have to turn around. We have to start doing what is right. We have to start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you do that within your family, within your congregation, and within your congregation of congregations. And you have to do it with a stranger in your midst. And the people outside the camp. So, back again. I ask the question, how does this translate into the activities of your local congregation? You've got the surplus within your congregation. I mean, after you've given ten, a portion up to the minister of your ministers, now you have to, you know, provide for who? Nobody in your congregation? Well, you can set aside some. You know, the same as the body has a reservoir of blood constantly in motion. So you would have some in your reservoir constantly there available in in time of need. If you had elected your seven men, you could give some to them and that would go 
around also in the network. There's many ways in which to give. You get to choose Do I get, how much I give to this and how much I give to that one. Or you can just hand $10 bills out the window to people on the street, which is stupid and foolish. But if you're actually seeking the kingdom, you're seeking a way in which to verify that the funds that you're putting into casting your bread upon the water is actually going somewhere of value. You don't have control but you watch and see where it goes and hope that it comes back to you the same as those ashes will come back to you mixed with the blood, the Spirit of God and it will bless you. The same as it blessed Abraham and brought him all kinds of allies overnight. Okay, now you go out to charitable groups. People are already thinking charity a little bit. Now, there's different kinds of charitable groups. There's good charitable groups and there's bad charitable groups. You go out to them and you maybe just give them some money. Maybe part of your tithe is time. You have 10% of your time you want to give. So everybody in your congregation goes down to the local food bank. You go down to uh, the local shelter and you say, we want to volunteer and help and do things here and and assist. And you get a feel for the place. When you do this, and then you may decide, well, we're going to go over here next, and we'll go over here next. And you get to know the different people who are in the charity business, and sometimes have a charitable heart. And you decide, you know, that shelter does a way better job than this shelter. That shelter actually helps people. Let's let's put more time into that shelter. But you have to go out and find these places yourself. There's not... Yeah, I mean, you can look online and find all the charitable institutions, but some shelters are bad deals. They're just ways of extorting more money out of the government. And they cater to the wicked. They don't cater to the righteous. So you have to find out which ones, and finding out which ones, and helping them, that is the sacrifice of the red heifer. Because those people will remember you, and they may help you guys sometime. And some of them may even say, we want to become one of you and get the circumcision of the heart and start saying, yeah, we should do all charitable work through charity, you know, all welfare work through charity. And they may want to actually become a Christian. Because that's your outreach. Not these idiots who call themselves Christians and are absolutely fooled into thinking we need a red heifer to sacrifice, to have the ashes purify the temple. Nonsense. Absolute, insane nonsense. But I understand how they get to be insane like that. Because so much of the church is an apostasy. So much of the church is more like the Pharisees than the early Christians. That this is all unrighteousness. But if you were to turn around and seek the righteousness of God, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you going the right way? Why are you still feeding at the trough of the men who exercise authority? Why aren't you gathering together in a national, international network of charity? 
So, you know, that was one of the questions on the liturgy course, and, and we're, uh, we're going to uh, have another one on Tuesday, and we'll deal with another chapter of the book, uh, which I have to get to working on, but I have a ton of work I have to do here. <laughs> uh, and if you think you want to be a minister, if you think you want to be a part of a congregation, join the network and uh, start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness instead of the self-righteousness saying, you know, I thought a thought and God saved me. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And we have to turn around and go the other way. Anyway, we need to take a look at all these things anew. We need to uh, start actually walking the walk that Christ said to walk. Uh, that the whole red heifer thing, the, there was a union and discipline amongst the early church that was praised. And, and the early church, when I'm saying the early church at the time of Christ, there was a church before that, which was the church in the wilderness. It was the Levites. The church took over the role of the Levites, which is why you find Levites who had been corrupted probably since the days of the Hasmoneans, and therefore they started owning land as a personal estate. And they weren't supposed to do that. And the Old Testament is very clear that they had no inheritance in the land as a personal estate. But the Levites had land, but not as an inheritance as a personal estate. They owned all the land they owned in common. They even called them lands in common. And they... They provided the social welfare of a system through faith, hope, and charity. They don't say charity. They say free will offering, which is what charity is. And they ministered to that. The Pharisees weren't doing that. Pharisees had turned it into a system of social welfare that was making the word of God to none effect. They were still reading the Torah, but they had twisted it so much that, you know, people thought, you know, we got to kill a red heifer and gather up its ashes and mix it with blood and purify the altar. Uh, which is insanity. No wonder people are leaving the church. doesn't make any sense. And some of those people leaving the church, it doesn't make any sense. You know, some of them are angry and upset and, and, and want to be communists or socialists or something. But the reality is this, this bizarre, bloody observance of uh, mentioned in Numbers 19 was simply, like I say, describing foreign aid on a national basis that where they cast their red heifer, their surplus, upon other nations. They got to choose which nations they would help out. Obviously, there were some nations that were too far from the kingdom to to even want to help out. But this is the Levites doing it, the church in the wilderness doing it. This is the government of the people operating through faith, hope, and charity or free will offerings. And they were distributing this foreign aid. And you can do that in your local congregation because these other churches out here that are under this strong delusion by a bunch of these brutish ministers who are in it for their own money and their own selfish reasons and their own vain ego have led them astray with false religion that they call Christianity or fundamentalist Christianity or evangelical Christianity, which is all a bunch of nonsense. 
But some of the people, you can choose. You can go out and look. And in that looking, you will be evangelical. You will be spreading the gospel. And if you can actually take care of all the needy within your congregations. You know, somebody was just telling me about a guy traveling up here in the woods. And he spent the winter at Bly. I don't know if it was this year or last year, but, you know, it was down to like 30 below there. But uh, he's traveling with on horseback. And he's living off the land. He actually, like, digs up roots of saplings, you know, and cooks them and all this kind of stuff. And because uh, he's learning to eat all these wild uh, edibles and stuff. Which may be a wealth of knowledge, but he's very, very skinny. <laughs> when the guy was telling me this, I said, yeah, you never used to see a, a fat Paiute. Uh, all the Paiutes were skinny. You know, Truckee and all those guys, they were skinny guys. And uh, you didn't start seeing any fat ones until welfare. <laughs> and uh, white men started feeding them this garbage food. But... Uh, he, he may know some skills, and he may be, but he's, where's kingdom? And just simply being self-sufficient. We had somebody come on the network who talks about being self-sufficient, living off the land, and all this kind of stuff. You know, I think it was the same guy who said he had the lodial title and all these kinds of things. Where's kingdom? Where's his family? Is he taking care of his family? Is he supporting his family? Is he working to support his family? You know, how do you bear society when you got these guys wandering off in the wilderness uh, eating roots? You need more. And that more is the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And that's what we should be seeking. And until then, peace upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.